My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by none other than Anthony Daniels, uh, who is probably more, uh, more well known by his pseudonym, Theodore Dalrymple. He is a retired prison physician and psychiatrist uh, and the author of many, many wonderful books, uh, among them Life at the Bottom and Our Culture, What's Left of It. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you very much for asking me. I'm, I'm very happy you came on with the help of a, of a, um, a lovely listener who put us in contact. Um, and I also um, want to ask you about kind of um, <laughs> something that we have in common, uh, because you are one of the, the most prolific chroniclers of what would probably be called the, the dysfunctions of modernity, especially as they relate to uh, the so-called underclass, you know, the people at the bottom. Um, and we do have something in common is a uh, shock at the uh, state of, of criminality in the United Kingdom. I used to live there for about six years fairly recently. Um, and what I experienced there would probably be called something like a narco tyranny. Like there were certain things that were, were very heavily enforced, like, you know, the TV license was very a, a very heavily enforced uh, element in society. But then there was also, you know, knife crime and, and quite literal physical violence that was uh, more recorded than, than controlled in any, any way. I, I wonder what your feeling is. First of all, I would say a lot is un, uh, unrecorded as well. Uh, yes. uh, because uh, if you follow the evolution of statistics, uh, the use of statistics, the crime statistics, you can see that they are uh, less and less accurate uh, and uh, more and more untrustworthy. But everyone's experience, of course, uh, when I say everyone, I don't mean uh, people living in certain areas, but uh, I, I mean people living uh, in the kind of places that I believe you lived in. Uh, everyone is aware of the level of crime. Um, and uh, it's very much worse than people... Um, than intellectuals are, tend to accept. Uh, and they don't, uh, uh, they underplay the effect that it has on people's lives. Uh, there are various things that they can't grasp, for example, that the, that the principal victims of crime are the poor. So while it is true that the poor commit more crime, and I'm talking about relatively poor, of course, I'm not talking about the starving, uh, while the relatively poor commit more crime, uh, the relatively poor are also victims of more crime. And since the numbers, even now, even in our disordered society, the number of victims is much larger than the number of perpetrators, then failure to try and uh, limit the number of perpetrators is uh, actually enmity to the poor. Exactly. I um, 
I remember reading, and uh, I think it was, I think Steven Pinker is probably the most uh, um, well-known exponent of this, this, this view that, you know, we can track statistically that things are improving and they're improving quite drastically in, you know, in, in criminality. Um, but at the same time, I, I was <laughs> observing that, number one, the police often does not answer the phone. They're not really noting down, there's no actual record of, of crimes, especially, I don't know, shoplifting or things like that. You know, they, if they go unreported, it's, you know, the statistics will be beautiful if, if no one actually reports them anymore. Well, they're not, I mean, the statistics are not beautiful, but they're not <laughs> as bad as they should be. Okay. And, uh, and I can give an example uh, of, um, of a crime commission. My wife observed that we had a, um, a skip, uh, Americans call it a dumpster, in our garden when we were moving, and some youths came and set fire to it, and it was actually quite dangerous. Um, because it could easily have spread, the fire could easily have spread to the house or to other houses, um, setting fire to trees and things like that. But, it, but anyway, my wife called the police. Uh, the police at first refused to record the crime because they don't want it to spoil their statistics. They want to be able to say, for example, there is no arson in this area. And when my wife insisted that they recorded, uh, the crime, uh, they eventually reluctantly did so. And then about 15 minutes later, a much more senior policeman phoned her to tell her that she had been wasting uh, the police's time. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that we now come to expect. Working class people know perfectly well that if their houses are burgled, uh, the police will do nothing and possibly not even uh, recorded. So, on the other hand, the police will go over, uh, will make enormous efforts uh, about, uh, in the direction of pseudo crime, uh, like hate crime. Yeah, non non crime hate incident or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. So, so uh, their principal activity actually is uh, receiving their paycheck. Uh, retiring early on bogus grounds and uh, getting a pension. And uh, unfortunately, in Britain, we think that this is the function of much of our public service now. This seems to be quite uh, coherent, actually, looking at what um, the, the, the core ideology is of, of you know, the, the ruling regime that exists in, in Western Europe and in the US as well. Um, the idea that crime is a... Um, kind of a dysfunction of information like these people are you know not educated to not commit crime so it's not really necessarily that bad and it's actually the the crime uh the, the burden of the crime falls on society for not doing better by these people so um and there's also a lot of oppressor narratives tied into this so you're probably not in a terrible neighborhood so maybe in a way you kind of had it coming <laughs> that your you know your your uh, garbage pail would be set on fire you know it's, it's not that yeah, bad for you it's crime as restitution for injustice exactly exactly and uh, i mean it's complete nonsense it's obvious nonsense and Actually, to what I discovered in uh, working in a prison, of course, is that while it is true that many uh, criminals have come from very bad backgrounds and so on, um, 
we now live in, um, there are parts of society in which two-parent families are unknown. And it's not that there are some uh, uh, two-parent families, there just aren't any. And, um, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, they are still human beings who make their choices. And uh, if you talk to them as if they are human beings who have made choices, often or usually not very good choices, um, they, they, I found that they actually react with relief because they don't have to pretend anymore. Mm. Because they reflect, they reflect back to people who talk to them, the sociological theories that they have picked up uh, through, uh, well, as a kind of rumor. I mean, they don't read sociological tracts, of course, but they, but but it, these tracts have actually infiltrated uh, into mentalities. But at the same time, they know it's nonsense. They know perfectly well that when they go into a house and steal things, for example, they have chosen to do so. And, and even now, it's obviously a choice because uh, not everybody in the same situation does the same. Uh, I mean, uh, and uh, in fact, most people even now do not burgle houses, whatever their background. Exactly. I think it's... Um... It's it's a strange uh, relationship that we have to this this word paternalism, especially because you know it, it just means pertaining to the father, uh, and in all these places where um, there are no fathers, there's also and essentially a, a paternalism is also missing uh, because obviously we it's seen as a as a as a bad thing as a, essentially an, an evil concept that you know you might. Um, guide people into more positive ways of living. Uh, I wonder if you think that there is a deficit in paternalism, especially in these, in these areas. Well, I think there is, and there is in, in, in medicine even. If you, I noticed, I don't know whether you noticed uh, during the Uvalde uh, shooting in, in uh, Texas, <clears throat> the reports <clears throat> described the children as students. Well, they were eight and nine years old, seven, eight, nine year, years old. A seven, eight or nine-year-old is not a student, he's a pupil. Mm -hmm. And a student is, a, is someone who is learning and gradually uh, what he learns is more and more up to himself. And you grow into studenthood from pupilhood. But we've eliminated pupilhood. So a person is a student from the age of two or three. Mm -hmm. And this is significant because it means that, in essence, we are um, uh, removing from adults the authority to decide things for children at a time when children, and that's the whole point of being a child, you, you have to, and, and being brought up is that you have to be inducted into things. It, it will not occur, things will not just happen spontaneously. So there is this deficit, and if I may talk about medicine for a bit, uh, when you are very ill, I've been very ill a few times in my life, I don't want to make decisions for myself. I want someone else to make decisions for me because I'm, I don't have the energy and, and so on and so forth. And 
I have been very fortunate. The people who have made the decisions for me have been um, have done it uh, correctly and with probity. And that means that there, there, there is trust on both sides. I trust them to do their best, and they trust me not to be impossible or difficult. Mm. Now, of course, uh, 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 paternalism can go far too far. I mean, I do remember the days when a surgeon would walk down the, um, uh, down the ward and point to... Uh, point to a patient and say, leg off tomorrow, without, without, without much further explanation. Uh, but there must be a happy medium. And there are circumstances in which people are only too glad to have the decisions taken out of their hands and, and given to someone who may assume to be acting in their best interests. And uh, quite, in my experience, more often than not, uh, people do act in other people's best interests when trust is placed in them. Of course, that is not always the case. But Dr. Johnson said something rather beautiful. He said, it is uh, better sometimes to be deceived than never to trust. Mm. Yes, I think that's a, that's that's very profound. But I feel like um, the, the issue that I see in, in the West and... and probably slowly, I mean, in the East has always been a low trust society, but the West is increasingly becoming more like the East in that it is, you know, this, this core element of trust between people is eroding uh, and it's being um, replaced by this universal norm of, of choice and autonomy that um, you, you know, you're an informed citizen, hopefully, and then you, you make your own decisions because um, not only is there no really any grounds to trust other people, but there's also no um, no need to because, you know, you, there's a kind of this choice paradigm that you can just, you know, opt in and out of relationships, uh, you know, treatments as well. I mean, the the variety and, and complexity of treatments that one can apply to, to oneself nowadays, including optional mutilation uh, is is incredible and it's it's expanding by the year there's more and more ways in which you can annihilate yourself if you go into the street uh, self mutilation appears uh, more and more compulsory rather than, <laughs> exactly rather than optional is it yeah. yes I, mean, I the fact is that uh, uh, the idea that one is autonomous in the sense that one decides everything for oneself all the time, everything, is false. And it would be, I mean, if one were autonomous in that way, uh, life would be horrible. I mean, I don't want to uh, decide everything. I don't want to decide what time the postman comes uh, and, and all the other things. Recently, when I <clears throat> had my house in England redecorated, I chose a decorator and let him get on with it. Uh, on the assumption that he knew what he was doing, and he did know what he was doing. And now sometimes, of course, I might have chosen a decorator who was a thief or a, a criminal or, or incompetent. That's possible. Uh, but... On the whole, I have found most people do their best if you assume they're going to do their best. 
Yes. Um, there's uh, there's also kind of the, um, the the fact that you know this this idea of of autonomy is kind of drawn into younger and younger. Like you said, you know, the student is someone who takes control of of their own education from a very very young age. Um, um, and we've we've kind of seen this with. Um, I mean, it's it just as a mother, it's kind of scares me that the idea that a child has agency is is becoming much more and more um, common. And there are different ways in which this, like you said, becomes important. Uh, but you know, obviously, transgenderism is the most the most acute form of this phenomenon now, and uh, uh, it 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 kind of I feel like it 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 announces something maybe even darker than this, which is hard to imagine. But the idea that, for example, children might have um, enough agency to decide that they want to engage in all sorts of sexual relationships with adults, because obviously children have kind of a sexual dimension to them. You know, they have the equipment in some way, and then they may may have some ideas. They want to experiment, play doctor with your neighbor or something like that, which is, yeah, it's possible. One of the, one of the problems is that people are reluctant to accept boundaries which, to some extent, <clears throat> must be uh, arbitrary. So, for example, if you take the age of consent to sexual relations, it's clearly absurd to say that one day before the age of consent, the legal age of consent, the child is in such a position that it can't give consent, and the next day it is. But if you say that there is no natural boundary, then you'll have no <clears throat> completely definable boundary, then you will soon have no boundary at all. And what we see is the, the uh, dissolution of all boundaries is a bit like saying, because there is no, <clears throat> there is no height at which a man becomes tall, there are no tall men. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Everything is a spectrum. Therefore, everything there are no is a limits. spectrum, and therefore you can't. For example, you can't say if you're running an army, we will only take uh, men above a certain height because whichever height you choose is is arbitrary because there will be someone one millimeter less. Exactly. So, uh, so, and the other thing is we don't accept rules which either we derive ourselves from our own first principles or which seem to us completely logical. Well, of course, life can't be uh, led by, com uh, um, can't be determined by completely logical rules. We have to, we have to obey certain things which cannot be proved from first principles and um, exactly i think the, the the problem there is again in a way paternalism like from from what standard does authority come from and yeah. will that standard be accepted by anyone it's like okay we're, we're drawing a line in the sand because lines in the sand are indispensable that's how we create a civilization but who exactly is you know where the sovereignty lie that's the question um do you think that a, a, a common standard of morality can exist without a transcendent measure, you know, either religion or some form of commonly agreed upon standard that lies outside of just mere speculation? Well, I wonder whether the common standard is a bit like the blush on a grape. Once you touch the blush on the grape, you can never get it back. And 
if you do have a common standard, uh, commonly accepted rules by which people live, people don't examine them. And this can, of course, be a bad thing because sometimes the rules will be very cruel or uh, I, I don't want to say that all, all rules that have ever been devised are good. They're not. <clears throat> and, they have, and they are subject to criticism. But once the criticism, once the habit of criticism goes too far, uh, once you have a kind of antinomian mindset, then, uh, then, if you like, things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. And um, I don't know, I mean, it perhaps it's an exaggeration to say that we've reached that state yet. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we have. I mean, I, uh, I, I must admit that walking down the street, for example, I don't feel I'm about to be attacked. Uh, I, <laughs> it depends what time it is and in which part of East London you are. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I'm sure that that's true. But uh, fortunately in my life, well, actually, I used to live in East London and it wasn't as bad as it was now. And it was much poorer then, of course, much, much poorer, incomparably poorer. Um, uh, but um, I, so I've never felt under that, I don't feel under that kind of threat. Nevertheless, uh, things can easily uh, deteriorate much further. Uh, and when you have a kind of uh, atmosphere of self-doubt in which everyone is constantly questioning who has the right to demand anything, of anybody else, uh, then uh, eventually you will get a, a, a war of each against all. There's, I feel, still quite a lot of status to be um, harvested from from being from inhabiting this kind of antinomian frame to uh, by being, for example, post colonial post colonial theorist or things like or, that. Well, if you take up. If you look at art criticism or uh, architectural criticism, one of the things that people will say is it's transgressive. And they use the word transgressive as if it were automatically a, a, a term of praise. Um, and when you look at uh, architectural criticism, for example, never is there any aesthetic evaluation. Never. They say this is interesting. This is unusual. This is unique. This is original. But they never say this adds to the beauty of the city. Exactly, because saying what is beautiful is a, is a, a statement of a kind of a transcendent dimension. Like, yes. who are you to judge what is beautiful? Yes, exactly. With the result, of course, that there has been a tremendous uglification of things. And if I, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm in Paris at the moment. I would set someone a task, find a building post-war, post-Second World War, in this city, which is an adornment to the city. And I think you would go a very long time before you found one. I and mean, then you could find hundreds, probably possibly thousands of cases where it destroys or undermines the beauty of the city, but not one which can be said to be an adornment to the city. I think this argument is harder to make 
in Romania where I live. Uh, and I live in the western part of Romania where um, this kind of small city that I live in was the center of the city was built during Austro-Hungarian times and it's in the Art Nouveau style and it's being, you know, cherished and reconstructed in, in any any way possible with any funds possible at the moment and the kind of a donut outside of that is just squares of decaying concrete as any other eastern european city is so um we kind of have an appreciation for for that but still even here no one knows how to build in that style it's almost like a, one of those sci-fi novels where a whole civilization has died and we barely can just uh, reconstruct piecemeal yeah. Yeah, I had a very interesting, I was in a, a town, uh, a city uh, called Coventry, uh, which was largely destroyed in the war, uh, which actually was one of the finest medieval cities in Europe. Uh, although the city council, even before it was bombed, had the plan to pull it all down uh, and, and make it uh, like Novosibirsk. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, because they thought that was modernity, and modernity was necessarily a good thing. What comes after must be better than what came before. Um, Anyway, uh, there were a few buildings left, and Coventry, this was in the year of the Olympics in Britain, that festival of universal stupidity, and uh, (laughs) and, um, so obviously much touted by Mr. Blair. But anyway, um, there are a few of the old buildings left, and they were very beautiful, and they are very beautiful. And they were being restored because there were going to be um, um, some events of the Olympic Games in Coventry, and they were trying to make the city look slightly less appalling than it actually is. And um, I came out, I was there for a murder trial, actually, as a witness. And um, I came out at lunchtime, and there was a, a bricklayer there. And he was, he was repairing very beautifully, actually, the, uh, one of the buildings. And I fell to talking to him and said, look at the building you're doing, and look at all the buildings around you, the modern buildings around you. And he said, yes, it's terrible. And I said, um, we, uh, we don't build them now. And he said, well, we know how to build them. We all know how to build them. It's just that nobody demands that we build them. In fact, we do, they demand that we don't build them. Because if you do build them, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I I feel like the, the criticism that usually pops up when when people demand sometimes they do demand to to build in 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 an old style is that it's pastiche. It's that it's it's you cannot even attempt to recreate the old uh, because we've been so severed from from that um, from that genealogy that kind of every you know because of the permanent revolution we everything new has to be not that because that's yeah. I'm not actually against uh, newness in itself, but I think it must be uh, uh, judged by uh, standards other than originality. Originality is not a virtue in itself. Uh, As to the idea that it's pastiche, well, in a sense, all architecture has been pastiche in, in the sense that all architecture has referred to its past, to, to the past. So, if we take uh, 
modern architecture, much of it is pastiche of Mies van der Rohe or pastiche of Le Corbusier. The problem is that Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe were exceptionally nasty human beings. They were... Uh, <laughs> Le, Corb <laughs> Le Corbusier... I mean, he was one of the great monsters of the 20th century, actually, and would have been... Um, remembered as such if it hadn't been for the much greater monsters of uh, Hitler and Stalin and Mao and so on. Um, but he was a genuine fascist, and it's obvious that from his designs that he's a fascist. Uh, the uh, Oscar Niemeyer, the builder of... Um, uh, the architect of, um, of um, Brasilia, he was a communist who admired the fascist Le Corbusier. They are totalitarians, and architects, modern architects, are totalitarian. They don't believe that they're creating beautiful cities or livable cities. They think that they are telling, they, that their job is to um, tell us the life we should lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spaces for the new man, as envisioned by one of these guys. <laughs> Yes. So, um, anyway, I don't know whether we are going off the subject of the conversation. No, the rambling is always encouraged. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the subject is whatever whatever you feel like uh, speaking about. But um, another thing that you are, I think, a little bit specialized in, just, just because of maybe overexposure to it, is is evil, <laughs> the category yeah. of, of evil. Um, what What is evil in your, in your perception? Well, I haven't quite worked it out, but it obviously has an attraction of its own because, um, uh, I mean, to give you uh, an example, uh, which is rather alarming, it's obviously much easier for a writer to create an evil character who is interesting than a good character who is interesting. Good characters are, are uh, shall we say, uh, like a, a good cup of tea, whereas um, bad characters are like a glass of champagne. I mean, you could say that evil is just the extreme end of a continuum of goodness and badness. Um, there are all kinds of puzzles about it. In the, in the prison, for example, I would occasionally... Occasionally meet the kind of person who, from the very time he was able to make a decision, did bad, uh, did harm. So, for example, from a very early age, he would be cruel to animals. He would lie even when there was no benefit to lying. would lie as a kind of matter of principle. Uh, such a person would never learn from experience and wouldn't, you couldn't punish him out of this behavior, and so on and so forth. And there are such people, and it's very difficult in those circumstances not to believe that there is something almost neurological about this evil, or, or, or at least congenital. And what people also tend to forget in, in discussions like this is that there are good people at the other end of the spectrum, who seem to be born good. Mm. And most people, most people are born somewhere in between, uh, in, in between the two ends of this spectrum. Um, I don't know where you place yourself, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I would place myself in the middle. 
Same. Um, and I think social arrangements could possibly move the whole distribution either to the commission of evil or uh, to the commission of good by more people. But actually to the essence of evil, that's rather, it, it is difficult. I mean, when one meets, in the prison, most people that I met were not, you wouldn't call them evil. You would call them weak, stupid, ill-intentioned and so on, but you wouldn't call them evil. But you, one did occasionally meet someone and it was almost like a, a physical sensation meeting them. It was mm. almost as if the temperature in the room went down as they came in. I haven't answered your question because I, I haven't really worked it out for myself. Yes, it's 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 really interesting, especially because you you give um, a lot of examples of um, of of women in in your essays that are almost magnetically attracted oh, to yeah. these people, um, and you also have a I think one of your more fam famous essays is. You know, I think I even have the quote here. Uh, it's um, um, a man's propensity to violence is as immediately legible in his face and bearing as any other strongly marked character trait. And they also recognize that. Uh, but maybe they would be attracted like like the moth to the flame uh, just because of that. I mean, in in your um, uh, in your estimation, what is it about these men that uh, that women find irresistible? In the circumstances in which women are drawn to that. I mean, I'm not saying all women are, obviously not. Um, but these men promise an exciting life. Mm -hmm. At the very least, they're not boring. Yes, and they are a high high status just because they have a will to power that is very well, they, yes. They have visible. a high they have a high status if your uh, scale of values is very debased. Of course, but for example, you know, if we think about, let's say, at a very kind of limbic lizard brain level for yeah, a woman yeah. to have that, you know, he would maybe, if she can convince him not to be violent to her, which is a, a long shot, uh, be very good in protecting her if, I don't know, an enemy tribe came in raiding the village, you know, or, or something like that. He's probably a, a natural predator to other men. Of course, this doesn't, this, this attraction doesn't last forever and eventually the if i may put it like this the worm turns mm -hmm. uh, there are many many women who think he'll change for me um that's one thing that they say and of course it isn't true uh, they're not very good at analyzing why the man is violent often the violence of a man like that <clears throat> is entirely arbitrary so the woman spends her time thinking, what have I done that he should have hit me or done whatever he's done, uh, when there's actually no real reason. There's nothing she's done uh, to, uh, I don't like this word, but I'll use it, merit it. There's nothing she's done to deserve it. And she can't explain it. But that is advantageous for the man because it means that she's spending her whole time thinking about him. Mm -hmm. An intermittent from, reward system. Yes, yes. And, and he, um, he is often very jealous because he himself is a sexual predator. So he assumes that all other men are sexual predators and therefore he has to uh, protect 
the, the woman. I mean, he, he wants free access to other women, but he doesn't want his woman um, to have free access to other men. Uh, these things are rather incompatible. So the violence is a, a means of keeping the woman under control. Eventually, it doesn't work because eventually, usually, the woman leaves. But when she leaves, she goes and finds someone who is almost obviously of the same time. And I used to ask my patients, women patients, who were victims of this kind of behaviour, how long it would take me to realise that this man was no good. And um, they would say, you would know as he came through the door. I mean, it would be obvious. Yeah, the, the face think, well, tattoos usually give it away. Well, yeah. well if you've gone, yes. And so, uh, so um, uh, I would say, well, if you know I would know, you would know what I would know, how I would know. Therefore, you knew. Therefore, you are complicit in this situation. And this was a logic which they understood. And I thought it was important, not because I thought that in every case it, it, would, it would mean a complete um, change in their lives, but it would at least put a seed in their minds that, uh, that they could do something about their situation. And, and I think some, some did. And although it's all perfectly obvious, what I said was perfectly obvious, I and mean, it's not um, it's not very deep philosophy. Or, um, it came to them as a revelation, so it was both obvious and a revelation. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes that's that's how revelations happen. Just someone <laughs> coming in and and stating the obvious to your face. Um, do do you think that? Because uh, a lot of times these kind of this, the cycle of violence, the cycle of all this is is said to be uh, seeded in childhood. That these women have never actually met a man that wasn't in some form like these men. Uh, maybe their mother's boyfriends because the father wasn't really there. Um, there's not really maybe I, I could imagine that maybe for some women like that, a man that is not like that is not really a man. It's just. He's just not exciting as a as as a, the polarity of the opposite sex. Well, certainly, I had cases where women had had several relationships, and there was one decent man amongst them, the kind of man who went out to work and came home and was very nice, and, and so on and so forth. And he was always got rid of the quickest. Mm. So, uh, because he was boring, uh, partly because if you're if you lead a decent life, but you're not highly paid, um, uh, possibly your life doesn't come, doesn't meet the standards of excitement that are be, to be seen on every video, on every television, and so on. So you're bored. So actually, entertainment, in my view, is one of the greatest causes of boredom in uh, modern society because people compare real life, if you like, with video life, or, and uh, real life cannot be as exciting as uh, video life. And so they're bored by real life because they have no interests. They have no cultural interest, they have no political interest, no religious interest, they have no aesthetic interest. And therefore, all they have is the possibility of excitement. 
and and uh, these horrible monsters uh, will provide that excitement for those women. I did write an essay about it. I don't know whether you remember, there was a terrible case in England <clears throat> of a man called Sean Jenkin, Shane, sorry, Shane Jenkin. And he was a, he was a six foot four man, tattooed all over, of course, violent, had just come out of prison for a violent attack on somebody who, and leaving that person brain damage. And a woman immediately found him attractive and yes. went to live with him. And of course, yes. he was he was violent and so on. I mean, the, the Night Stalker, uh, famous serial killer in LA, a, a guy who didn't even have any teeth. He wasn't, he looked like a, a creature, a demon just crawled out of hell. He was married in prison and he that wasn't the actual oh, all, one they suitor. They all, get, they, they all get many suitors. They all get many suitors. Anyway, this this changing eventually put out this woman's eyes with his bare hands. Oh Jesus! And and the woman said, when he'd done this, this time he went too far. This time he went too far, and he'd been astonishingly violent before. And when when I and mean, she wrote a book actually, or no doubt it was ghosted. But it was very interesting. She was not, she was not a stupid person in the sense that she was lacking in sufficient intelligence. But, but her tastes and and um, attractions led to this terrible outcome, which was all too predictable. And in fact, on one occasion, she called the police eleven times because he was violent. Her and on one occasion, the she always withdrew her charges, but on one occasion, the police insisted, here I say something good about the police, the police insisted on prosecuting. And in the witness box, she refused to test, she didn't testify against him. She said that her serious injuries at that time were caused by falling down the stairs. Mm. And the judge took the very unusual step, I mean, in fact, I've never heard of it, before, of calling her into his chambers afterwards and said, and saying to her, I hope you don't regret this. I hope you don't live to regret this. Anyway, then the next time uh, the police appeared, she'd had her eyes gouged out with his, with his fingers by this man who had watched videos of people gouging eyes out. Incidentally, she let her. She left her children in the charge of this man so that she could go out drinking. Mm. If, if this is a cult, if this is your, if this is a culture in which you live, <clears throat> what hope is there for people unless they change their conceptions of life and their culture? Yes, it, it seems to me that the, the fact that. We kind of have a society now with with uh, egalitarian norms, and there's there's kind of been a, a bit of a depolarization of of the sexes as well, where you know essentially everyone has the everyone's burden of life is pretty much similar at the moment. Um, and if you if you look at, for example, women's fantasy novels, 
there's always essentially that polarity. That's essentially the, the, the premise for, for all of it. Someone is a pirate, billionaire, some sort of socially dominant position, um, which is very rare nowadays. And I feel like maybe a lot of women um, find the criminal extra interesting because he's kind of one of the kind of the, the rare breed of this type of apex predator type man, obviously in the negative direction. This is not a, you know, there, he's not high status because he's um, useful to society, but he's high status because he's a menace to society, but he still appears in the tabloids. He's still an interesting high profile person. He dominates other men through brute force. So I wonder if that's why this archetype's extra interesting. Well, certainly it is true that uh, when it comes to offers of marriage, only the most brutal and vicious criminals get them. I mean, no, no woman is interested in a shoplifter who's in. I can do that myself. <laughs> yes. So, so they don't go for them. They go for the, the wife killers and the, <laughs> and the monsters. Um, however, I don't, I, what I can't tell you is how widespread this uh, mentality is. I mean, is it 1% of the population? Is it 90% of the population? I can't tell you. Um, but certainly it seems pretty widespread. I mean, true, true crime is, uh, is is extremely popular with, with women, <laughs> mostly. Which, that, which crime? True crime, either documentaries, podcasts, all of this well, stuff. Well, I think it, it, uh, true crime, uh, I mean, I'm quite interested in true crime. Um, <laughs> Statistically, you're in a minority. <laughs> I mean, mean, I I find, well, obviously, because of my work, I was extremely interested in it. And it is interesting. I mean, why are crime novels? Why is it that crime novels are so popular? And actually, the standard of them, on the whole, is higher than literary fiction, uh, probably. Um, I mean, I must say, the kind of crime novels that I like are the crime novels which are really fairy stories in which uh, uh, truth and goodness are restored at the end. And the kind of uh, social realist uh, crime novels I don't like because I've, I've lived in that world long enough and I just find it horrible and repulsive. Uh, how how do you think that has affected you? Do you feel like you you kind of bear the the stain of of all these years of of absorbing being kind of a sin eater of sorts? <laughs> no, well, I th- I suppose if I if I hadn't written about it, I think it would have had a much greater effect on me. Uh, but as it was, I thought I was communicating something uh, to my fellow citizens that they didn't know or that they closed their eyes to and that therefore I was performing some kind of duty. And it was cathartic. I think if I, if I had had all those experiences and hadn't been able to communicate them in some way to others, then it would have affected me far more deeply. But it hasn't, I mean, in my personal life, it hasn't affected me at all. I think it's... This is just my <laughs> analysis here, but it it probably has helped that you have a, a fairly um, clear internal standard of of what is good and what is bad, and that you're not someone who's um, non-judgmental. I feel like someone yeah. who would be non-judgmental in situations would be absorbing this and not having any sort of framework to actually place it in, and might be a little bit more discombobulated by what's happening. Well, yes. At one one point, I kept a diary in which I 
I, I didn't uh, work what I heard up into some kind of literary um, um, shape. I simply recorded everything that I heard. And after a few days, I had to give up because it was simply too unbearable. And no one would want to read it. I mean, it, it was, it's just one horror after the other. So actually, things were much worse than I was really depicting. And in some ways, I was trying to make them amusing. Because it's my, and also to let things speak for themselves. Um, but I, I mean, it seemed the problem with intellectuals is that they see everything through their preconceived theoretical lens. So they don't see anything uh, directly, including themselves, incidentally. I mean, one of the things about psychology, I, mean, this, I, I believe the study of psychology has decreased man's self-understanding uh, greatly, at least on an individual level. I'm not talking about you know, problems of arachnophobia or something like that, but, but uh, deeper understanding of life is that everything is seen through some kind of theoretical lens, whether it be psychoanalytical or behaviorist or neurochemical or Darwinist, and uh, so that they are people are are uh, the raw reality is disguised from them, so they're no longer capable even of seeing the things that I saw. Yes, that was actually the the, the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, do you think? That there is um, that that the knowledge, the common knowledge of psychology and psychiatry as a almost like a pop psychology and everything that all this knowledge that is out there now is a is a bit of an info hazard that people have um, not only not benefited from it but that is, has made society yeah measurably worse. Well, I don't, uh, when you say measurably, I'm not sure about that. I, mean, I don't know how you would go about measuring it, but my 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 instinct tells me that it makes people um, less able to reflect in a genuine way. I mean, if you again to to um, to give an example of genuine reflection, you can read the essays of Dr. Johnson. There is real reflection because he doesn't have any theory to propound. Mm. Uh, um, uh, but if you go on a bus, you will hear people talking about their brain chemistry. Well, they don't know anything about brain chemistry. They probably couldn't tell you the formula of salt. I mean, it's, it's, this, is, uh, this is no more uh, real. Uh, in fact, it's equivalent to uh, the theory of spirits. Uh, uh, so... Uh, it gives them, however, it, it has certain conveniences. It gives you an excuse for your own behavior and it uh, passes on to others the duty or the, the supposed ability uh, to change it, when at the same time you know, really, at some level, that this is impossible. Exactly. Nobody can do it. It takes it off your hands and, it and takes, puts it yes. on society, exactly. on experiences, on whoever. Or on profession. Exactly. So, for example, drug addicts in the prison would say to me, 
I would give up my drugs if I got the help. And I said, what is the help that you want? What help is there? And they seemed to believe that there was some kind of technical maneuver that someone could make that would stop them taking the drugs without any effort or willpower or decision on their part. Well, this is ridiculous. It's obviously ridiculous. And yet this is the model that we are constantly propounding uh, in our newspapers, on television, or wherever people get their information from, in rumours and so on and so forth. And this descends, the, these rumours derive from sociologists, criminologists, uh, neuroscientists, and so on and so forth. Yes, And, and in a sense, it's a false bill of goods, it's snake oil. Yes, and there, there's also the added layer that uh, a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the DSM-5 is now high status. For example, um, there are support groups, I mean, support groups, they're essentially affinity groups for any any sort of cluster B disorder. They're affinity groups, or even, even schizophrenics now have a sort of... Um, kind of a rights movement, uh, I think the, the hearing voices movement or something like that, uh, where the idea is that schizophrenia has a bad rap <laughs> and uh, we need to be um, seeing it in, in a better light or being more kind to people with, with the disorder. And a lot of people find um, identity around these movements. Yes, yeah, usually, of course, the, I mean, if the kind of schizophrenics who are neglected, and there are schizophrenics who are neglected, uh, partly because our psychiatric services simultaneously make work for themselves and avoid work, just like the police. It's the same as the police. There's a kind of induced incompetence in them. Uh, it's not a natural incompetence, it's actually programmed incompetence. And so while they are busy... Um, 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 assisting people who can absorb any amount of attention without any benefit to them whatsoever, they neglect people who actually could be helped uh, to some or even a great extent. And uh, so the real schizophrenics, people who are really psychotic, are often, I used to see this, neglected in a terrible way. Partly, of course, because they are very difficult to deal with. I mean, it, the whole point about being uh, psychotic is that it does make people difficult to deal with. And so they'd rather not deal with them. Um, so in a sense, I can understand why uh, people say that, that, that there are organisations. Um, but I'm a, I'm a paternalist about this. I think that if... I don't think it's a great advantage to people to be able to, to lie in doorways uh, hearing voices. Exactly. Uh, it's not, not a benefit to them, and it's not a benefit to society. Um, and I, I'm not completely against people with common problems, problems in common, coming together and, and, uh, to discuss them, so long as they don't make this the center of their uh, identity and existence. Yeah, I think you know, 
making it a support group and um, also seeing it as a problem. I think a, a lot of times these these movements are are geared towards destigmatization and creating awareness or a public profile for for the problem, which typically what that does, it, it empowers, you know, 10, 15, 20, 100 activists who make this their identity to build a profile for themselves, obviously, yeah. and in the process raise awareness and funding and, and, all, and all this stuff. But it doesn't really help people because the core premise here is that this is not a problem. The stigma is the problem. The stigma yeah. for hearing voices yeah. is the problem. Yeah, right. I, I mean, you, the fact is that you're never going to remove stigma from from um, uh, from a condition like schizophrenia or psychosis. And after all, you can see why, because it attacks the very fundaments of being a human being. I mean, if you said uh, we don't want any stigma to them. Uh, in, in essence, to the, to the condition, in essence, we're saying, well, we wouldn't mind if our child had that condition. Well, we would mind if our child had that condition. Exactly. This is the same conversation around the sex work now as well, where that also needs yeah. to be completely destigmatized. But no one really wants their daughter to be a prostitute. <laughs> so. Well, I did. I, 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 I don't know why, but there's a, there's a, a, a festival in a, a literary and intellectual festival in England called uh, How the Light Gets In. It's also part of the Hay Festival. It's in a little town called Hay on Wye, which is a very beautiful little town which is mainly second-hand bookshops, so I like that town very much. Anyway, I was I appeared twice uh, on a panel there about prostitution. Why they invited me? I mean, as if I knew, <laughs> knew a great deal about prostitution. I don't know, but anyway, they did, and I agreed to do it. And I was on, <clears throat> on a panel with a woman who was uh, the chairwoman of some kind of um, association of prostitutes. And then there was a, a rather prim and proper uh, lady who was a sociologist who investigated uh, 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 prostitution, as it did, did empirical observations on it. And she said, well, it's a job like any other. And uh, many women like it because, you know, the hours are flexible and so on. They're all <laughs> relatively well paid and so on and so forth. And um, so I said, well, I, there was very briefly in Germany, there was a trial to get unemployed women who were receiving uh, receiving uh, benefits for unemployment uh to to say well there's a you know there's work as a prostitute out there if, you know someone is seeking for a prostitute flexible and, hours and of course this this uh this idea didn't last very long so one of the uh, i think it was the lady the uh the, who ran the organization for prostitutes said, well, not everyone can be a prostitute. So I said, well, I'm sure with training, everybody, everybody can be a prostitute. And that what was struck me about all this was that nobody laughed in the audience. Very seriously. <laughs> they, they took it... <laughs> <laughs> they took it all 
seriously. And I thought, well, if, I, I mean, does one really have to explain why, uh, why prostitution just isn't another, isn't a job the same as, shall we say, being a clerk in the post office? You know, and uh, and I'm afraid amongst intellectuals, one one does know. And in fact, this goes back a long time because um, uh, George Bernard Shaw, many years ago, I mean, more than a hundred years ago, said that marriage is legalized prostitution. Yes. <laughs> well, I think a, a lot of uh, intellectuals might say that while being safely married in there. Well, one of the curious, yes, one of the curious things is that uh, uh, the higher up the social class you go, the more and, and the more liberal people are, the more they abide by the rather old-fashioned rules. I mean, they may be hypocritical, of course. They may break those rules from time to time, but nevertheless, they tend to have more stable relationships and more traditional uh, family relationships uh, than they advocate in theory. Unfortunately, it's the people at the lower end of the uh, of the social spectrum who can least afford these experiments who undertake them, and to the extent now that what was once called normality is completely unknown. Yes, I think it's, um, I think at, at, in the first uh, uh, wave of this, it was mostly like a minority and, and, and black communities and in the, in the, even in the UK and the US, but now it's, uh, I think, almost a, a majority of, of white children as well in the UK being single single parent homes. So it's, uh, it's. Well, I don't know about single parent homes, but they're certainly not in in, in married homes. Mm-hmm. And fifty, I think the latest figures, and they constantly go up. Fifty two percent, fifty two percent of of children are born out of wedlock now. Um, and people will say, intellectuals will say, well, what's a piece of paper? And I remember having a patient when I was quite a young man. I had a a patient, she was a a nursing sister who fell in love with one of her patients, who was a well-to-do widowed uh, businessman. And uh, she, I won't say what, she was from a minority and uh, she loved him. And he, they did have a quite a long lasting relationship, but she wanted to marry him, uh, partly because her mother said, you must marry him. And he wouldn't marry her. And I and, and she tried to commit suicide and in the end did commit suicide because of the and I said to him before she committed suicide, why won't you marry her? And he said, Well, it's only a piece of paper. And I said, Well, if it's only a piece of paper, why not sign it? Yes. I mean, it's only a piece of paper in both directions. Exactly. So I if feel it like were, that. Uh, uh, so obviously he understood that it wasn't just a piece of paper. Of course. I feel like a, a lot of the um, 
the, the progress uh, of the of the sexual revolution um, and the pill and uh, laxening divorce norms and, and all of this is seen as some sort of liberation of women. But obviously, it's also any liberation means an abdication of responsibility somewhere. Um, and usually it, it was on the male side, like, uh, you know, <laughs> access to universal abortion means that there's not the man really doesn't have to call you back because there's really nothing that can happen. That's too bad because, you know, you'll just take care of it or uh, the same. It's just a piece of paper. It's, it's, it's an application of, of that responsibility that you'd have for the relationship. I mean, it, in a sense, it, it, it probably was a liberation for people who were able to uh, behave in a reasonable way. Of course, but that's usually the case, isn't it? Well, like, uh, for example, children of, of of rich people, you know, they they have they consume cocaine on occasion, but they're not yes. the people on the street. Um, yes, yeah. I mean the, uh, and actually, I was just uh, for other reasons, I was just reading H. Um, G. Wells's autobiography, in which he he was a great believer in sexual liberation. And he, of course, was personally very sexually liberated. He had children by at least two women who were not, um, not that he wasn't married to. And but he didn't abdicate his responsibility completely. Uh, but of course, he was a world famous author with a world famous author's income, <laughs> and, uh, and he was a very brilliant man. I mean, there's no question about that. And he also grew up, perhaps, in an absurdly repressive uh, society. But the question never occurred to him, as far as I can tell, what would happen to society if everybody behaved as I behave? You know, who doesn't have a huge income from... Um, uh, from uh, his writing, and who isn't a brilliant man as as he was, um, I mean, he started from very humble background, so he he knew what people were like, and actually, uh, he was a very divided man. He, his mind was like divided into two parts: there was a kind of realistic part, and there was a utopian part, and the utopian part. The, the sexual liberation belonged to his utopian part. Um, <clears throat> but he never asked himself this pretty obvious question. What's it going to be like, for example, for coal miners, if they all behave like you? What's going to result? <laughs> he never asked it, even though he was a socialist. He believed in equality, but he, he never thought... Uh, he never wondered what was going to happen. Maybe, maybe people thought. I mean, some someone like him might have thought that uh, um, religion would be the kind of a, a permanent state in in the in the lower classes. He was extremely anti-religious. He was extremely anti-religious. It's good uh, for them, but not for me. Might might have been his position. Yeah. Well, I, it wasn't even that he said it's okay for me, but I and I don't care about them. Uh, he simply didn't think about it. Yeah, it seems like you need to have a, a bit of a overgrown utopianism to sometimes cope with uh, the the fallout of the what you do in your real life. I mean, Jean Jacques Rousseau was similar, a, yeah. a horrible man. Marx, essentially, very very similar. The, the main the, the main utopians of of the of our history were all 
pretty pretty dastardly people in in real life and maybe they had to create these dream worlds to compensate for what they knew was wrong yes i i, I don't know but it all see i mean all of this seems perfectly obvious to me Yes, but you've you've had a lot of experience with with humankind. I think many things are obvious to you that just don't, don't occur to some people, especially if they're in the in the upper yes, crust. Yes, I suppose that that is true. If I hadn't had the experience I have had, I might have been able to theorize about uh, how wonderful it would all be if the only if the only thing binding people together were the their affections of the moment, which was a kind of theory that. Uh, and they uh, people didn't understand that actually uh, people grow into a deeper affection. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've been impressed by is Indian arranged marriages. And we think this is a terrible system. And arranged marriages are not the same as forced marriages. Uh, it's not saying you are going to marry this person, but parents who have experience of life select a group of of uh, possible spouses who have some kind of commonality with the other spouse and then the 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 the, the projected spouse has the choice that in fact both spouses have the choice both have veto as it were and what is discovered is that rather than starting off on a very high level you grow into a high level. And this, in a way, seems a much more realistic view of human relations than starting off on this wonderful peak from which all else will be some kind of decline. And, of course, no system, no system uh, of human relations will work perfectly. That, that's another thing that one... Uh, one <clears throat> one forgets is and I, I think uh, part of the the revolution in in um, uh, sexual relations was utopian because it, it's undoubtedly the case that a marriage which is unhappy is hell or can be hell there's, there's no doubt about that um, and so people said, well, if there's this hell, there must be a solution to the situation uh, which will produce invariable happiness. But there's no such uh, situation for man. There's no way of life that will produce nothing but satisfaction. Yes, and, and man can, can definitely create a hell on earth for himself by his own expectations it's and much, his own ideas. It's much easy, yeah, it's much easier than creating uh, heaven on earth. Exactly. And it's usually the same path, surprisingly. <laughs> you take a left off of Utopia Lane and it somehow, somehow happens. Um, I, I know we're coming up on time and I don't want to take more of your time, but I will have to ask you the question of the show. This is a question everyone gets at the end of the show. Is uh, Do you have a um, subversive thinker, it could be a writer, it could be anyone that you choose, that you think is underrated, that people should read more of, that maybe was influential in your thinking? Well, I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't like the idea of someone being subversive as a uh, as beneficial in itself. <laughs> someone may be subversive in a good way, but of course, many people are subversive in a very bad way. But if in, in light if, of the times, that's all. That's why yes, the <laughs> I would. Uh, well, if I had to, from many points of view, 
I would suggest that people uh, read a man called Simon Lays. I don't know whether you have heard no. of him. No. He was a Belgian-Australian <clears throat> sinologist who during the Cultural Revolution was one of the first to say very, very powerfully that this was horrible and disastrous uh, development. It was a power struggle uh, and it was um, violent uh, and there was nothing to be said for it. And which, of course, destroyed his ability to go to China. He was a very, very brilliant man, but he was also a literary essayist of great beauty and power. And um, he was a man of the utmost probity, uh, but also um, with enormous literary ability. So I would say read the essays of uh, Simon Lees. And if you want to write, uh, then you could have no better model, uh, prose model, than he. And he wrote both in French and English. I believe he wrote in Chinese as well, but he wrote in both French and English. Oh, wonderful. That's that's an, an excellent recommendation. Uh, we, could, we could all use a little bit of help with writing, especially nowadays when, uh, yeah, uh, a bunch of characters is that is, is all you need. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I also want to thank, I think it's Mr. Konitzer, is that how you pronounce it? Who, who put us in contact? Konitzer. Yes. Thank you so much, Mr. Conitzer. Um, and uh, I want to point people towards your huge body of work. Uh, all your books are available on Amazon and everywhere fine books are, are sold. Um, and uh, your essays in also pretty much every every publication that is uh, has something to say. <laughs> um, and um, I'm, I'm very, very happy that you came on. You're definitely one of my dream guests on the show. So I'm, I'm, I'm so, so pleased that you decided to come on. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.